0: Welcome to the Second Rail Education Podcast. My name is John Heinz. I have a special guest today. Her name is Mary Avalos. Mary is a professor of teaching and learning at the University of Miami School of Education and Human Development, something that I actually want to ask about a little bit. She specializes in English learners, bilingualism, disciplinary literacy, which is another area that I know absolutely nothing about and would like to learn more on, and professional development for for in-service teachers. Mary is also an op-ed writer for the Miami Herald and a powerful voice in Florida for, uh, for education, uh, education issues and working with teachers on the ground. So we have a lot to talk about and I had a bunch of questions. So so Mary, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks, John. Great to have to be here.
0: <laughs> so I noticed first of all when I was when I was uh I, I literally got uh, originally connected with you after your Miami Herald op-ed, but I noticed that you um, got your PhD in Riverside in California. So I guess the starting point for the conversation has to be uh East Coast West Coast. What's better?
1: Well, um uh we've lived here in florida now in miami 20 over 20 years so this is definitely our home we still go to california often to visit family so we get the benefit of both east and west coast but i would definitely choose the east coast (laughs) as the better it's way crowded in california so this is a little bit less crowded.
0: Yeah, yeah. I lived briefly for about a year. I was teaching in the valley uh, and I lived in Santa Monica and I look back at it as one of the most beautiful, joyful years of my life because it was easy, but I have to be honest, it was in the mid nineties. And now when I go back there, it is so much more crowded.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree. Even when we left in the late nineties. So yeah, it's even since we left. It's been very different
0: now. Yeah, I've visited Florida many times, and I have friends in Florida, but I don't, I, I don't know the ins and outs of the kind of the Florida scene, other than kind of what I read in the, in the press, in Google feeds, and in the national, kind of the, 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 the issues that bubble up to the. the to nationally. But I know that, you know, in many ways, people still think about Florida as kind of an incubator for a lot of things in teaching and learning. And I assume that at least part of what prompted you to write that op-ed was the new governor, Governor DeSantis, announcing back when he got into office that he was going to be eliminating the Common Core from Florida. So I'm I'm a little bit curious what was your what was your motivation to to write that in the first place?
1: I was actually approached by the dean of our School of Education and Human Development and she asked if I wanted to write a response as an op-ed to Governor DeSantis's call for a review and possibly replacement of the standards and I took the opportunity to do so because there's so much more to success and learning than the standards. And I think that there, that might be something that the political world may know not not very much about. And so I guess that was the reason I decided to do it. I was invited to do it by the Dean and I was happy and thankful that she gave me the opportunity.
0: Yeah, so I, I, I'd encourage our listeners to to go and read the article, but the way my, and, and feel free to edit, correct me if I'm wrong, but I basically, this, to summarize kind of what you did really well uh, or what you highlighted was, were four things to Governor Sanders. One is that the idea of standards is not the idea of curriculum which i think is i thought was a great first point that anyone who's a professional educator would know but it seemed clear to me if you felt the need to highlight it must have been a challenge for some people in politics and maybe people in the larger community that teacher professionalism is key to standards and curricula and i guess what i came away with as the big takeaway is that teaching as a profession is really under attack and is, is going away in the face of, I don't know, for lack of a better word, micromanagement from kind of people who think that standards, curriculum, instruction, accountability are all kind of part of one simple entity that can be just dictated from above and, and, and come across. Is that, and be given, be handed to teachers. Does that seem fair?
1: Definitely, I would agree that that's unfortunately the direction that we see education going. It's been that way now for years, but it's headed even further in that direction. The professionalism behind teaching is being lost. And in fact, when working with teachers in the district or in South Florida, many of them are have lost the art of creating objectives, I would say, because they follow the pacing guide so, so closely That they're not even really attuned to how their students are performing or understanding the content before they move on, because that's the mandate that's coming down. And I want to, I guess, make it clear that I don't blame the district. I don't blame the teachers for any of this. I think that it's, it's a performance culture that's put in place based on the legislated policies that are coming from the federal and the state level. And the way they are enacted at the local level is in reaction to the punitive measures taken against schools, as you mentioned, the micromanagement, the, the embarrassment, um, so to speak, around being a high-need school with a failing grade. In Florida, we use a grading system, as many other states do, to evaluate schools and, and teachers, and so everything that counts really is that grade and the student's achievement on those tests.
0: Right, so I left I left the US a couple of years ago when I came to China and am working in basically the equivalent of a charter school here because China hilariously has really deregulated its education industry to the point where what very, is very similar to kind of private entities running schools that at least receive some public funding is a really common entity here and it's it's what was amazing to me and was really eye-opening to me is that this is in no way just a domestic us phenomenon it is happening globally and and, and I guess I'm wondering like kind of if the pendulum has swung the other way at all in the last two years or if you or if Florida has kind of reached the kind of you know the the zenith of this of this one particular rotation around the around the sun, or whether whether you see it kind of happening more, and and are kind of preparing teachers for the, uh, on the to operate in the assumption that it's going to get even, it's going to go in more in this direction before there's maybe a correction or maybe an opportunity for an increased amplification of teacher professionalism and teacher you know teacher driven instruction.
1: Not sure if you saw the Herald today, but there was another op-ed in there um, written by a state representative mm-hmm. here a local representative um, to the state and it was all about how something good is happening in schools in Florida based on test scores and unfortunately that's what people measure success by and the public at large if they see the school system is climbing in rankings based on achievement because of test scores they're very happy. (laughs) And they feel that things are improving. But I think what's missing are the teachers and the students' voices. And what is the cost of having those test scores go up? And that's, that's what's really missing in the whole narrative is how, how are teachers and students sort of boxed in by all of these policies to increase test scores. Do
0: you see a, a way that teachers or maybe just an individual savvy teachers or teachers kind of at a, at a through professional organizations are, are able to articulate the impact of some of these policies? Or are you seeing it entirely kind of a one-way discussion where it's like, well, this is what everybody wants, this is what they're getting, and this is where we're going?
1: I don't feel as if teachers really have a voice here. It's a right-to-work state, and so they pretty much don't have a voice. I think the hope would be with parents, and any grassroots sort of effort to make change would have to come, I think, from parents. And unfortunately, this, the parents who whose children suffer the most because of these policies tend to be those who are marginalized to begin with, and so their voice is not necessarily heard either. So the, the students in the more affluent schools are not hurting because of these policies because typically they do well, you know, regardless of what's happening with instruction. They have a wealth of experiences to draw from that are aligned with what's valued in school. And other students who come from more marginalized places have a wealth of experiences as well, but they may not be what's valued in school. And so um, I'm not sure if it would be possible to organize some sort of a grassroots effort to create change. But that, I think, would be the best possible way to do that.
0: Is there a change or are you seeing a change between generations of teachers where uh, I have a colleague here in, in China who is an American who worked for she's from Kansas she's like 26 years old she worked for 2 years in Kansas uh, or for uh, she graduated from University of Kansas then went to New Orleans uh, which is nationally known for being kind of the vanguard of the charter movement and kind of center of it and she's really and 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 she came here and and has started working with us and has really noticed that it's equally directed from above and uh, focused on accountability here. It's all focused at 100 percent. It's focused on college acceptance rates and where and specifically where people get accepted, which I suppose is the same drive with the test scores in the U.S. But she actually found that her, her complaints about the the challenges of teaching under a kind of a highly unprofessional teaching environment is really different from the complaints of teachers who are older, who kind of lived at a time and taught through a time where they had a lot more autonomy. Are you seeing any difference between the kind of teachers who are coming into the profession now and kind of how they integrate these kind of new policies and how they integrate the kind of the, 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 the pacing guides as opposed to teachers who are there a long time and maybe are approaching it, you know, coming at it from a totally different angle?
1: Not necessarily experienced, because most of the work I do is with more experienced teachers, but. I guess the pacing guides do serve to facilitate and support teachers who are brand new to the field because it provides, you know, a scaffold for them with regard to planning their instruction. Um, Mm -hmm. And so while it may not be based on the movement from one objective to the next, may not be based on students meeting the objective, at least they have you know, sort of like a map of the curriculum objectives on standards to that helps them get through the year. So in that respect, and I've been reminded actually, by district colleagues, that pacing guides are not all bad. And, and I would agree, they're not all bad. It's just that when they become the reason to stop looking at formative assessments to drive your, instu- in your instruction, then I think that's uh, malpractice and not not something that a, a doctor would do if he had a pacing guide, so to speak, to follow his clinical decisions. So mm-hmm. I agree that pacing guides have a function, but you know it can't be the end all, and should not be the end all for students
0: learning. So, so what is so? Talk a little bit about what you've noticed the impact are of these pacing guides and of the change that you've seen in teaching over the last 20 years?
1: Well, the pressures I think related to testing, not necessarily a result of pacing guides, but of policies, I think that's really where the the crux of the matter is not necessarily how these policies were enacted, but the policies themselves are lending themselves to um, high levels of stress for teachers and students, demoralized workforce, really a workforce, not professionals anymore, unfortunately. Um, And a performance culture where where it really is making the district look good is what it's all about. Rather than owning the responsibility of, you know, there is no perfect district and we need to make this a place where students are learning and that's the priority rather than this is a district that's achieving these test scores. Um, So the changes I've seen have moved from, teachers from, I mean, when I taught in California, it was much more progressive there as far as teacher autonomy, decision-making. Then coming here, I I felt as if I stepped back um, in time a little bit because it was still very much directed and a very sort of authoritarian feel in schools, even though I never taught in a classroom here full time, there was still that feeling of, yeah, I need to ask my principal for permission before we can do X, Y, Z. <laughs> but, in, you know, for example, in California, it's, it's my professional opinion that my students needed X, Y, Z. I did that. And so I, I just see more of a reliance, so to speak, on the, the pacing guide rather than on understanding what students know in order to plan instruction
0: so so i've noticed that a lot of times with students that are focused on test scores or maybe definitely more students than parents is that there's a lot of especially when it's a multiple choice test as opposed to something that maybe is more has the potential for more variability or can be assessed by a teacher in a way that allows the teacher not to simply say you did terribly, that there's something demoralizing that happens to kids that makes it more difficult to move forward. Because I've I've been a believer my whole teaching career that basically all assessment is formative (laughs) and all you're doing is giving, you're doing calisthenics for some future some future goal that when the kids really pa- are passionate about something, uh, and everything else is just practice along the way. But I, I'm curious: is that like can we drill down a little bit on what? Definitely, there's a I, I I feel like if I I feel like if we did a survey of what of people what do they think of test scores that people would say oh they're bad, but at the same time parents I think would say well but I you know I I want my kid to get into the best college and I know that they need a good test score to get into a good college. I'm trying to think: is the primary negative impact of that culture or of that focus that students there's are demoralized or are there are there other are there other results that kind of that teachers and students and maybe maybe parents would see every day
1: that's a really good question so i was just reviewing a manuscript which included student perspectives Uh, and i think that's something that's missing in the literature too um, is you know how is all of this impacting students from what i read in that paper students who were grouped together as is very common um, in classes for quote unquote failing the test felt stupid just you know disengaged from the from the curriculum in my experience working with teachers here many many of those students do not have electives they don't get to decide if they want to take pe or band or art, they're put into a double dose of reading, because they failed the test. So Mm -hmm. parents who have children who don't want to go to school, because you know, they they don't feel as if it's a place where they're successful. They must, they must feel that every day, when they're sending their kids off to school, or when they feel as if their kids are going to school to learn.
0: Yeah. So how do those parents from, you know, I don't know, from your work with 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 them or with the students or teachers, how how do parents or how do schools that are successful at communicating this to parents communicate it? Which which I mean is by which I mean, how do schools or parents or uh, teachers get the idea that? Hey, this kid needs something significantly different and adapt for it. I mean, are you just saying that doesn't that doesn't happen across the board or are are, are there pockets of it happening and, 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 and where it works? And how does it work?
1: I haven't been a parent in a public school for probably six years now. So and the schools where my children went were one of those schools where despite everything happening, they did fine in school <laughs> mm-hmm. because we're middle-class citizens. And so I can't really answer your question, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure. And that's something that is a fascinating um, thing to think about, you know, why, how is yeah, it, what, that, how is the, it that, stu- that parents do accept the situation? I'm not sure.
0: Yeah I mean we see the same thing here I the 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 school that and I'm in a large school system here in Shanghai where the, you know, everything is targeting at universities, and yet it doesn't take long as a teacher to see that the vast majority of kids are are interested in the arts or are interested in music or are interested in something entirely different from the kind of traditional science, economics, mathematics path that the parents here are so very strongly in a kind of almost a stereotypically accurate <laughs> Asian way are pushing their kids toward. And it's, you, you you see the kind of, and maybe they're a little bit better here of kind of hiding their kind of demoralization, but you kind of, you definitely know it's there, right? You, you can still sense it. And I, I, I haven't seen a really successful way that other than maybe one-on-one conversations, but the there's, it's, it's kind of like the message of the institutions are so kind of monolithically pushing toward a singular goal that it really, it's, it's, it's really, it's got to be painful for them. But, but, but talk, let's talk a little bit about your research. So, um, so what are you, what are you working on? What is your, what's your primary work? And can you give me a, give me a picture? Of, you know what your what your projects are. I saw on you know your website that you've worked with this uh, literary design collaborative project that you've worked with the Seal project, which I'd love to hear more about if that's still on your if that's still on your plate with the project on impact of professional development and with a it looks like a pretty big Title III federal reading project. Are, are those what you're working on and what what's your what's your area of expertise?
1: I am working on the Seal project. I still have about a year and a half left working with that, Um, and that is a U.S. Department of Education funded grant that provides tuition support for master's students. The project is much larger than that, however, because it's, it's aimed at investigating master's programs as viable professional development for teachers. Um, There isn't much out there in the literature that talks about how helpful it is to change practices for when teachers graduate from a master's program, for example. And so we are using um, an applied graduate education model in which teachers are asked to implement certain practices within their classrooms to improve teaching and learning for students who are diverse in high-need schools. And they also have... um, some of them, about half of them, are randomly selected for embedded support. So coaches go in and support them in to implement these practices that they're asked to actually teach and carry out in their classrooms. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's something that we have about a year and a half left. We just, we have 120 teachers now in our three master's programs and We're learning a lot from that, and that's where I've sort of seen the pacing guides come in and sort of trump the professional teacher autonomy of creating objectives, using classroom-based assessments to drive instruction. These are teachers that uh, I was co-teaching a class and working with teachers. Most of them have more than five to six years of experience, so they're seasoned teachers they've just moved away from that and it's sort of like they're rediscovering it so that is teaching us a lot about the context uh, in our public schools and the other thing that i'm working on now is a uh, a definitions called definitions project that looks at vocabulary learning for english learners in 4th grade and the aim of that project is to figure out ways that we can embed supports for vocabulary learning within connected texts for students, um, since vocabulary is a big part of comprehension when reading. Um, We wanted to see my, the principal investigator is my colleague, Maria Carlo, and I'm working with her, but we're collecting data and hoping to find a way that maybe texts could be, integrated with these different supports such as cognates or embedded definitions students being taught to use context clues for example to figure out the meanings of words that they don't know when they're reading mm-hmm. so that that's something else I'm working on uh, and so in the past my my area of interest has been English learners um, in school sittings where they, are limited in using their first language um, to, to learn content. And so making curriculum and content more accessible to them would be um, a goal of my work.
0: So let me ask you about the definitions project a little bit. I'm just, I'm, I'm curious. So what the type of research, the type of data that you're collecting, is it, is this something that's aimed toward like technology or is it something more observed behavior? Uh, What, what, what's, how, how does one even begin to go about, you know, identify, getting that granular with helping students uh, improve their reading?
1: Right. So we, um. We actually, it's not an intervention at all. We, uh, we go in, we collect mm-hmm. the data within two days, 30 minutes or so each day using um, a standardized measures. So we have an understanding of their English and Spanish. This is for Spanish speaking um, first language students, uh, literacy proficiencies and then, and vocabulary. And then we have a, a project-based measure that we use where their students see on, we we use a tablet, so it does involve some technology, but they they see a word in isolation sometimes, or they see a word within a context, and sometimes the context is rich and helpful, and sometimes it's more, I don't know, vague. And so that's what we're using to sort of help us understand how context clues may or may not be helpful. So we have this project-related measure that we've come up with that uses words that were identified as, like academic words that are general across content areas, mm-hmm. to determine whether the students are responding positively or not to these different kinds of text supports.
0: Based on where you're starting now, are you at the hypothesis stage, or are you kind of like, where, where do you think this is? Where do you think you're going to end up, or what are you sensing early on?
1: What we're seeing is that the more literacy, the higher the literacy proficiency in the first language, the higher in the second, which is something that's we've known, but is ignored by policy and and legislators, generally speaking. Interesting. <laughs> um, mm-hmm.
0: uh-huh.
1: and, and the public as well is not very knowledgeable about language learning and how the first language really is so important to promoting and developing the second. Um, But that's what, that's basically all I can say right now is, you know, how, you know, the the first language really has shown to be an important factor for vocabulary development.
0: So let me, let me ask you about that more broadly, because I I do think that that's what you're raising for me, one of the most interesting kind of contradictions in what I've noticed, and I guess that ends up having policy implications, which is that it seems like a lot of the discussions at the policy level and maybe even at the elector at the, the elections level and maybe even at the level of parents and parent knowledge is based on a kind of very superficial knowledge of what education is and what works and what doesn't work. And obviously, the example I always use is parents are like, well, it was good enough for me. It's good enough for my kid. And yet I know as a professional educator that there's this incredible breadth of research out there that... Tells us things that we know about teaching and learning that we know as a society and a world that professionals are, you know, at their at their best are bringing to bear and really are integrating through professional teacher preparation and through kind of practice to to the classroom. And that's that that gap between what maybe is happening in politics and maybe even with parents and what's happening in the professionals seems to be widening. Not what i would think would happen in in a society that's based on kind of taking information we learn and moving moving you know moving the profession forward would be doing do you, do you see a way that that gap in the same way that i'm seeing it or is is how how do you explain that and how do you how do you explain the the way that we are are so good at or have become so good at kind of not paying attention to what the research is telling us so clearly is the case
1: well First of all, and, and this, I've seen a big push lately for um, researchers to disseminate more broadly, you know, to different audiences results of studies. I mean, researchers do, and I'm included in that category, um, I'm on a research line. So that's basically my responsibility at the University of Miami is to bring in grants and to do research. But we do a very good job of talking to each other and we need to do a better yeah. job of disseminating our work to the public and to policy and to you know, policymakers so that they understand better what we're finding. But at the same time, many people are not open to hearing about it because as you mentioned, they've all gone to school right. and they all have ideas based on their experiences. And something else I think that um, is probably not as well attuned to with parents and policy ma- maybe policymakers, but I don't know about well, all parents is the fact of uh, you know how fast our world is changing and the need to sort of speed up what we're doing in schools to keep up with the changes that we're experiencing. So maybe not speeding up the learning so to so to speak, but the methods for learning need to change. Um, So that students are prepared to learn how to learn and not necessarily to learn a certain uh, to memorize. I don't know, whatever they're asked to memorize. So
0: well, it's so interesting because I think that I think that a lot of parents, and maybe even policymakers, but I think a lot of parents actually draw the opposite conclusion because they're like, well, if the world is so overwhelming with so much information, what we actually need to do to help my kids succeed is narrow the field of what they know and say, they only need to know X, Y, and Z. If I get this, if I can get them to know this, good enough, I know they know something and I feel confident about that. Is that is is that, do you think that's one of the drivers or do you think there are other forces that are keeping? people from what kind of embracing a, a more critical thinking and skills-based mindset.
1: Again, as I don't really I can't really speak very broadly from the a parent perspective, but I think that people who have a, a broader understanding of the, the world and it and how it's changing. Um, they may feel that, like you said, that you know the basics are what they need, and once they have the basics, they'll be okay. But um, I, I don't see very much technology use in innovative ways in our classrooms, you know, in public schools. So understanding how to use technology is is probably almost as important as some of the things that you know are. Are being pushed for teachers to cover in their classrooms.
0: What have you seen that teachers are doing that's good with technology that where you have seen something that's maybe more kind of uh, all encompassing and critical based?
1: So there's a there's something called the maker based movement. I'm not sure if you know what that is.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, sure. So
1: something like that I, I can see as you know, is really teaching the students to reason um through relevant problems and come up with innovative ways to address the problems and and it very much mirrors you know the kinds of thinking that will be something important in our future as we are speeding up our access to knowledge every day so i think something like that would be important for all students to experience but again the tests that are valued and and administered here the high stakes tests um, it, you're not going to see anything from that kind of a perspective on the test. It's more knowledge based. So yeah, unfortunately, it's it's a mismatch there.
0: Right. Well, I don't want to take too much of your time. I know you're busy, but I wanted to ask you one more question because I'm curious about where are you seeing if you if you were. I don't know if you were master of the universe and could uh, could make any change that you think needed to be made to to get to the point where we can get students to maximize their learning and get to the to the their their greatest potential in the future. What would you what, what do you what would you see um, as being something that would be best for us to put in place?
1: Biased probably because of my focus on literacy, but <laughs> I think that a lot of what provides power is language and understanding of of language. Now, I was raised in California, so Mm -hmm. it was a very progressive state. I never had explicit grammar instruction growing up. And so I'm not saying everybody needs, you know, explicit instruction for language, but I do believe that students who may not have the opportunity to hear language that's, you know, valued and used in school, outside of school, might you know would probably benefit mm-hmm. from that and so it would help english learners students who are learning english from with other language backgrounds including dialects be able to master the language of schooling and whatever is used outside of school is there's nothing wrong with that i really don't think uh, there should be you know a hierarchy of language one's better than the other etc but in order for students to get through all the gatekeeping of assessments and be able to perform in college um, as expected, they really do need to have a good grasp of language. And so I, I um, advocate for a functional grammar approach. Uh, maybe being in China, you're familiar with that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, talk about that a little bit, actually. I am familiar, but let's talk, talk about that a little bit for our audience.
1: Okay, so a functional grammar approach would focus on not necessarily identifying parts of speech in a sentence, which is what a traditional grammar approach does, but more about the focus would be more on what does this part of the sentence do to create meaning for the sentence or for the paragraph or you know, for the piece in general. So it's something that Michael Halliday came up with, and along with others. And um, it's something that I was able to start learning about. And I'm still learning about it. It's very uh, deep and comprehensive. And one of the things that we're trying to figure out is how much the, how much do teachers need to know about functional grammar to make it beneficial for student learning? And so the the grain size is something that we're working on, I suppose, um, but for teaching and learning with students, because it, it's not really something that, as, as mentioned in the traditional approach to grammar, you, you want to decontextualize right. the language teaching. You want to contextualize it within texts broadly defined that could be connected text, that could be visual representations that could be art or a graphic or graph so in some way you want to contextualize the language teaching to focus on um, a genre that's used to that's used within that context so it could be explanation it could be argument it could be a recount of events so that's just a little bit about functional grammar, but it's, it's really genre-based, and the purpose and meaning behind the language is what the focus of instruction is, so that you can teach students, for example, when they use nouns, how, how can you expand those nouns to provide more details in the sentence? Well, you can use a prepositional phrase, or you can use an embedded clause, and so, um, teaching students about all of those language features that are more prevalent in some genres than others um, would really help them understand language to the point where they may be more successful not only with not only with the tests, which unfortunately are the most important thing right now <laughs> for many um, people, right, right. but it's also, you know, a way for them to actually reason through you know math problems for example or you know just their understanding of language in general so it gives them a metacognition or a meta awareness of language
0: yeah. Yeah. So, um, so it, th- th- that's great. That's, uh, that is, is there, have you seen practitioners who are on the ground already kind of, uh, effectively deploying this on a regular basis in their classrooms, or is this kind of still something that is percolating up in some ways through the, uh, through the US education system? Because you're right, in China, this is, this is, the, this is the approach.
1: <laughs> in Australia as well. It's in, it's, met, it's embedded within their standards in Australia. So something very prevalent there. But hmm. in, in spots of the US, I see my colleagues working on this. And one of the main, I guess, goals of SEALD is to teach academic literacies in a way that values the disciplines, way of knowing, and so using functional grammar. So one of the goals was to help teachers implement a functional grammar approach to their content teaching. But that's where the pacing guides got in the way. So, you know, this takes a lot more time right. than just having students read their textbook or whatever approach it is that they're they're told to do in the pacing guide. And so, right. Every teacher is a language teacher. That's my belief, but whether or not language is sure. actually being taught to learn the content is the question. And I don't see that version. happening, yeah. at least not right now, at least within the context where I am.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, this is great. Mary, I can't thank you enough for doing this. This was really, really interesting. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks for doing this. Well, Thank
1: you, John. I look forward to hearing I, I, more I really, about really, your, your recordings too.
0: Yeah, I usually end the podcast by giving listeners little information about if, they, if they'd like to know more or if they'd like to contact you, where you might send them, either contact information or just some information online. Do you have anywhere that you would recommend people go to take a look to find out more about what you're doing and where you are?
1: Well, the University of Miami has project pages for all faculty, so that would be my current work. And ResearchGate is another way i post any work that i'm currently doing so Mm -hmm.
0: and i think you're active on twitter
1: yeah i mean i'm when i can i do (laughs) um (laughs) yes (laughs) twitter
0: i'm always amazed when i see people who are like no on on absolutely nowhere online but i do find it interesting just this with a cursory search to see where people pop up and i and compared to many you are very active on twitter okay
1: (laughs) I wish I could spend more time and be more active.
0: Of course. Once you slide in, it's like a morass and you just suddenly you're like, where did that last 45 minutes go? Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) So it's great. Well, thanks for doing this and uh, hopefully we can stay in touch. I really appreciate it. Thank
1: you, John. I appreciate your work too.
0: I want to thank my guests. Thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank Mary Heinz for doing the editing, Ted Enley for doing the music that starts and ends the podcast. And I'd like to thank you for listening. If you have any ideas for the podcast, I am just getting going and would love to hear feedback from you. If you would like to reach out to me, I'm easily available on Twitter on the website, SecondRail.com. And you can certainly email me as well at JohnHeinz at gmail.com. I hope you will join me again in a fortnight for more conversation about education and where it's going.